And I felt that actually too with the Alkion story. And I definitely want to get there where, where there's this weird pouring back into, like he's drained the bay or something. And now you know, there's a new flood back into the into the cistern or something. I don't know. I, I have no idea how to talk about it, but it's... Uh. Greg, Greg mutes himself in protest. <laughs> so... Where if one cannot speak, we must be silent. <laughs> Welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, a celebration of the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. On this episode, we are reading Book 11 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Book 11 opens with the grisly dismemberment of Orpheus, whose severed head floats down the Hebrus River, the waters causing his mouth to still murmur his sad songs, mourning the loss of his wife Eurydice as if the earth itself were mourning for him, or with him. This book also relates the famous story of Midas and his ill-fated wish to turn all he touched to gold, and of the violent king Dedillion transformed into an equally violent bird. The book ends with the long, tormented soliloquy of Queen Alcaeon, who failed to prevent her husband, King Saix, from sailing to Delphi, and during his voyage, as she had foreseen, he died at sea. Her story ends when, as she is wailing on the beach mourning Saix's death, his body washes ashore. She rushes to kiss his corpse, whereupon they are both transformed into seagulls. What do we owe the dead? How powerfully are the ghosts of the past alive in the present? Can a poet's song of mourning animate or reanimate inert matter? Can any human artifice do this? Is nature built from human memory, or is all our suffering and all our loss merely absorbed into nature's ever-changing flux, along with everything else? And now here's Elijah with the opening question. Hey, this is Elijah here with the opening question for book 11 of Ovid. There's a bunch of interesting things we can think about in this book. We have King Saix who, who tells some stories and gets lost at sea and his wife receives a dream vision that I think that's probably a story that we're going to want to think about. We also have Bacchus as a god returning. He seems to be playing a different, perhaps more respectable role than he did in the past. That's also something we want to maybe interrogate. But in terms of thinking about metamorphosis, there was an interesting statement that Saix makes uh, when he tells the story of his brother and how his brother turns into a bird. Approximately line 290 of the Humphreys translation, Saix says, speaking of his brother, he says, you think perhaps, Saix said, that bird you see there, hunter of other birds in terror to them was always feathered. No, he was once a man by name Dedilion, and then as now, for character is constant, he was fierce, aggressive, a lover of war, and harshness always. Saix goes on to explain how his brother, why his brother transformed into this aggressive seabird. But I was really struck by this language that character is constant in a, right, and one thinks of Heraclitus, right, character is fate. But it's interesting in a book of metamorphoses where everything is subject to change to have a character make this claim that character to have a person right a speaker make this claim that character is constant we don't necessarily have to start here but i think at some point in our conversation we want to address this and and 
try to determine what this statement is doing philosophically or narratively. And I think at the top, it's important to note that it's not the narrator. It's not Ovid the narrator that's saying this, but it's one of the characters. So character is constant. Does that seem like a true statement in the cosmos of the metamorphosis? Doesn't doesn't seem like it it is. I'm, I'm thinking about you mentioned there that Bacchus, the character of Bacchus seems to be changing a little bit in this book in relationship to how we've seen him in past books. I think even for Didillion, he is transformed into this bird and it's only like one aspect of his character that is preserved, right? I think we can think of the footnote mentions that there's also Lycon earlier. I think that was in book two is a sort of a ravenous, like violent ravenous character who's transformed into a wolf. So I think you get a particular aspect of a human's character is brought out via the metamorphosis, right? But it seems to be just like a, the most fundamental. Yeah, like a fundamental, but not the whole, the whole character, you know, the whole, the sort of tragedy of the, of the metamorphoses for individual characters in a lot of ways is that they are reduced to some particular thing or element or something. They lose a lot of their humanness, the fullness of their human selves. So to put another example on the table, Asakis, right? So I think that's the very last story we read. Asakis, he pursues Hesperia. He causes, inadvertently causes her death. And then he tries to throw himself into the sea, right? He tries to commit suicide. And then his metamorphosis is that he's transformed into a bird that's constantly diving into the sea, right? Reenacting this self-destructive action poetically, I guess you might say, over and over again, right? So if, I mean, is that a sort of character's constant sort of moment in your reading? That certainly tracks very well, Elijah, that he's continually reenacting the uh, the diving activity, the diving episode. I was going to mention that throughout the course of the book, we have been presented with cases of transformations where the characters are then uh, sort of psychological, their lived experience of being a transformed human being is described. Io is the most brilliant examples of that. And remind me, is Io is the one that turns into a stream that weeps forever? Is that right? I she of somebody was else? turned into a heifer mm-hmm. and was being uh, guarded by Argus. There's a description of her wanting to the... reach her arms out to plead with Argus, but she only had hooves. It's the it's the sister who uh, lost after her brother, right? That's transformed into the fountain that cries forever. I can't think of her name. Biblis. Biblis, Biblis, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But again, you see that there's just like the one aspect of her, just the sadness of the end of her journey is what's preserved, right? Right, so the, the transformations are often, the metamorphoses are often, in the way you're wanting to think about it, Adam, they're often reductive. They, In a sense, you might say that the tragedy is that the metamorphosis, the metamorphosis often caricatures the person, takes one feature and makes yeah. it the only feature. Which I'm amenable to that idea. I also think that like sort of the general thrust of the metamorphoses is that all of these changes are making the world more interesting and more varied. I think at least that's the way we want to think about it. But if this account that we're talking about is right, then 
really the world is getting more and more boring as manifold humans are transformed into into things with one salient feature that is important but not uh well, but not, sure. not, not a sure holistic representation well i think i think you can almost envision it as a new a, a new series of events and upheavals is like always following behind the last one you know and i kind of feel like transformations like this one where you you say here's an angry seabird here's the story of why the seabird is so angry there was this man he was you know he was violent and warlike and for whatever reason he was transformed to the seabird and you can see in the character of the seabird the character of the man that's like the end of one series of stories right but the larger set of stories is like always churning along behind it and there immediately are you know, each story is a segue to another story, right? So it seems like, I see what you mean, but at the same time, like you can, you have to imagine the transformation is sort of within a always mm-hmm. proliferating set of new beings and new new events and new transformations. I think that's right. Uh, also, I'm just going to make a general point that just occurred to me that um, it seems like the difficulty with writing allegory, and I don't know, we could talk about to what degree this is allegorical, but with alle- with allegorical writing or even like Aesop's fable, right? Moralistic writing, there does have to be something reductive about the characters, right? For the, mm-hmm. the point to be made. And I don't exactly think that's what Ovid is up to, but mm-hmm. I think like uh, if Auerbach were like writing about this, he'd say something about the move from that, that Ovid is right on the cusp of characters and maybe he has written about Ovid. He probably has. I haven't read it. But uh, the cusp of characters, right? The modern character is manifold, right? Uh, Madame Bovary or whatever is manifold in all these ways that ancient characters are often not. And and Ovid is one step in that literary metamorphosis over the centuries throughout the Western, the development of the Western literary tradition. Well, I think they're getting close to some of these characters, Biblis, these sort of distressed heroines or distressed queens with their their long soliloquies, uh, you often in, approach the manifold there. See that again with um, Alcoyne's soliloquy, trying to convince her husband, King Six, not to, to sail in this, in this book. One, and we've said before about the solilo- soliloquies that they feel proto-Shakespearean. And by that, we at least mean the display of interiority, manifold interiority in a proto-modern sense right yeah so i think the where we're going with like this is the kind of the the issue of reduction is really important to this claim because i really think right so almost all of ovid's stories are retellings and very bizarre ones right like with the argonauts he focuses exclusively on medea and then even weird aspects of the medea narrative there were some other ones. Hercules felt like, you know, the 12 labors are completely ignored. So it seems like Ovid is going back over the tradition. He's finding it reductive again, right? A lot of it, I do think a lot of his stories are, are necessarily reductive to character. But then having completed a second reduction of the character, somehow something, something more is accomplished. Like, you know, I, I, it's that weird sense where again and again in the animal world you find these like lesser beings that do they can only perform you know one set of tasks 
but the each time that we encounter them we're, we're like seeing that reduction in a new way i don't know no i guess i was thinking we we were thinking of these in terms of the human character but perhaps we're underestimating or undervaluing what Ovid's saying about animal character. Is that... Well, so the, the Latin too is is really funny there because it's the character. The word for character is anima, so it's you could you know you could almost translate it like soul is constant. And when we read to anima, we can talk about whether or not animals have souls. But it does seem to be that here the claim is right: the soul of the of the man is kept in his nature as an animal. His anima is preserved, but the man is there no longer. I was just thinking about that in terms of like the ancient world and what death comes to us. Like what would, what would become of us after death? And in some ways, that has to be a terrific reduction of our, of our character, right? We're no longer capable of doing something new once we're dead. And it seems like Ovid is grappling with that. But at the same time, the irony of retelling all of these stories seems to imply that, well, all, you know, all these characters can be encountered as new long after they're dead. Yeah, I, I feel like I was doing something really playful that I'm only barely starting to be able to talk about there. When it, it seems like two, I, I mean, two, two thoughts. One, it's so I've talked about how Dante, right, in, in hell, right, your punishment in hell is sort of the the logical outworking of of your primary sin in life right so if you're a glutton you're in this dirty swamp filled with trash and you're like this huge bloated character right because that you've been reduced to that one one sin is what characterizes your punishment and it seems like in the the logic of the cosmos or the metamorphosis right the the changes are never random right they're dictated by character or soul in some way so people change but they always change in accordance with their most salient feature at least from the perspective of the narrative and then it also occurs to me that maybe Ovid is like so I'm thinking about like Achilles right Achilles right at least the Greeks thought he was a historical figure I imagine Homer thought he was a historical figure when you go to put him in an epic right when his life is metamorphosized into a epic poem he becomes rage in some sense he's reduced to one characteristic and in yeah in epic poetry and in tragic poetry of the greek and roman variety retelling the myth in that way also very often involves the sort of reduction that we're talking about yeah it's, it's almost inevitable given the generic conventions to me it's it's remarkably similar to plato's myth of ur where right the characters and reflecting on what these characters are all of these heroes from the epic tradition are reduced to animal parodies of their primary traits odysseus accepted and that is it seems to like this it seems like death metamorphoses and like story retelling or myth making all seem to be part of what ovid is doing here right like he's he's grappling yeah ha. what i'm gonna okay so i think we're trying to think about about like time and mourning time and mourning and loss right like the meaning of death for human beings and how death kind of informs our 
retelling of ourselves and how death informs our understanding of the natural world maybe so i'm going to i'm going to read two passages from the beginning and the end of book 10. the first one is starts about line 40 it's after orpheus has been killed by the, the i thought they were bacchic bacchic revelers but later on in this book it says bacchus was demanded punishment for this evil so not we can talk about Bacchus's role here but in any case orpheus has been killed and um, it says the birds wept for him and the throng of beasts, the flinty rocks, the trees which came so often to hear his song all mourned. The trees, it seemed, shook down their leaves as if they might be women tearing their hair and rivers with their tears were swollen and their naiads and their dryads mourned in black robes. The poet's limbs lay scattered where they were flung in cruelty or madness. But Hebrus River took the head and the lyre and as they floated down the gentle current, the lyre made mournful sounds and the tongue murmured in mournful harmony and the banks echoed the strains of mourning. On the sea beyond their native stream, they came at last to Lesbos and here a serpent struck at the head, still dripping with sea spray. But Apollo came and stopped it, freezing the open jaws to stone, still gaping. And Orpheus's ghost fled under the earth and knew the places he had known before and haunting the fields of the blessed found Eurydice and took her in his arms and now together and side by side they wander or Orpheus follows or goes ahead and may with perfect safety look back for his Eurydice. Okay. And the second one is near the end of the book after Queen uh, Alcyon has begged her husband, King Six, not to sail to the Oracle and he sails and he dies at sea and she is walking along the beach mourning him. It was morning and she left her house to wander along the seashore, found the place again where she had watched him sail and well she lingered and well she said, just here he loosed the cable, just here he stood and kissed me, dwelling so on every recollection out to the sea, she gazed and out at the sea caught sight of something, a body it might have been. It's the body of her husband washing to land. She knew it was her husband. Here he is, she screamed and reached her trembling hands out, crying, oh my poor husband, my dearest, must you come home to me so? She runs along the beach, she seems to skim the surface like a bird on newfound wings and as she fell unhappy her mouth a slender bill made sounds like one complaining sorrowful she reached the body lifeless and still tried to embrace the limbs with her new wings in vain and tried to kiss cold lips with her rough bill no one could say whether six felt those kisses and responded or whether it was the lift of the waves alone that made him raise his face but he had felt them and through the pity of the gods the husband became a bird and joined his wife. Together they suffered and together loved. No parting followed them in their newfound form as birds. They mate, have young in the winter season for seven days of calm. So they become seabirds together. So I think both these passages depict nature as a place where we can meet the ghosts of the dead, right? and re-encounter our memories, the memories of our losses, but also something in being fixated on mourning, in becoming obsessed with mourning, something is lost of you, right? So, <laughs> so like the earth is alive with the, the, the rustlings of the dead <laughs> and the dead and the mourned and the lost. And on the one hand, you want to acknowledge that and fold it into the story you're telling. But on the other hand, the individual character within the story who 
gets lost in that murmur in the morning, the murmuring in the morning of the earth is like themselves somehow lost to the ongoing motion of the story and the narrative, right? And they're kind of frozen in place with their memories, but they can't be part of the future. They can't be part of the narrative that continues to unfold. Is that so we can we can, for example, the trees that mourned for Orpheus and shook the leaves from their from their limbs. We can think about the trees mourning for Orpheus if we happen to walk in woods that we know and the leaves are falling. So it can enrich our understanding. Yeah, it can enrich our feeling of nature to think of it that way. But if we stay in the grove with the morning trees, we become a tree, <laughs> right? Like we become one with that memory. Well, it seems like uh, looking at the first passage you read, it really struck me, it struck me kind of for the first time that um, in this story, we've seen humans become natural elements many times, but we've never seen a natural element become human. And if we look closely at this moment, it says the trees, it seemed, shook down their leaves as if they might be women tearing their hair and, and rivers with their tears were swollen and so on and so forth. They mourned in black robes. So you have personification here, right? You have what Victorian poets would call the pathetic fallacy. But it's interesting, right? In a book that is so open to any kind of transformation, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we've seen any instance where nature becomes human as a result of, of all of these events. And so the, the transformation is only one way, human to a natural element. And then once you become a natural element, I, you said, Adam, that you stop participating in the story. I think that's right. I might say it that you become background for future stories, right? You become the setting, the scene for future stories. And we, we can think, I can't remember the story exactly, but somebody gets turned into a plant, right? Because of mourning. And then somebody picks that plant and then they get transformed because they, they yeah. violated the gods or, you know, they, they did a impiety. And so, uh, so that is a character in the story in a certain sense, but it's not an active, it's an element in the story, but it's not an active character. But I really want to ask what you guys make of this idea that seems like for Ovid, nature turning into a human, a tree or a plant turning into a human because of some action seems to be forbidden or unthinkable in some way. Yeah, I, I've noticed that for the first time too, Elijah. I mean, it's, it's so, that scene is so remarkable. I do think there is some actual transformation though when the tongue in the river and the river now starts to echo back the broken scattered voice of Orpheus. And I think, okay, so book one has stones becoming people, but that's like an act of God and it's the first humans and it's like creation. This is very different. This is like, yeah, the, 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 world, the world is so open to Orpheus's existence that it becomes like him as opposed to us becoming natural as a consequence of our actions. I think it's pretty important that that's tied to Orpheus. You know, I really think that Ovid sees himself in Orpheus in some fundamental way that I, I don't know how to trace out. But that, yeah, that's something about poetry brings out the human being in nature. And partly it must be like the identification of all these etiologies, right? Like the poet. I think this book's really a lot about good lies, right? And the poet looks around the natural world and starts pretending that all of these sheer animalistic behaviors are ciphers for more 
authentic emotional experiences behind them. It's an interesting way to think about the movement, especially if you're thinking about this as, as a, a very Roman text, right? So I think we all know that in Roman culture, the veneration of the past and the veneration of ancestors, they celebrate that with an intensity for which there I mean, there's not any analog in our culture at, at all. And this idea that we're trying to bring out here, you, know, you, you imagine yourself, you're born, you are at first sort of a background character to other people's stories, you become the central character, you certainly feel like you're the central character, and everyone else is a background character to your story. But as you age, you age into the background, younger people come along and take control of the narrative, but you're still very much like a living presence in that story. And if you're a strong enough character, if you're a powerful enough presence, you can actually leap forward through time and have a direct effect on, on the central characters in a ways that they themselves are not in control of, which is a very, like, a very powerful and very living way to think about what a civilization or tradition is right right that and that and if you do that you achieve immortality in the roman sense not the christian sense but in the roman Roman, which must be something that that ovid aspired to for himself right i mean that's that's a pretty standard aspiration for an epic poet i mean he's doing it (laughs) we're Mm -hmm. we're enacting it right now right greg i want to read about the the serpent becoming a amplification for orpheus i want to look at those lines closely So they're floating down the river and then it says, and here a serpent struck at the head, still dripping with sea spray, but Apollo came and stopped it, freezing the open jaws to stone, still gaping. Is that the moment you were thinking about? No, it was a little later when his tongue is cast in the river and the river starts to babble for the first time Uh in the sweet song of Orpheus. Yeah, the whole earth amplifies Orpheus's mourning. It says... Sure, the Hebrews so, River took the head and lyre, and as they floated down the gentle current, the lyre made mournful sounds, and the tongue murmured in mournful harmony, and the banks echoed the strains of mourning. Ah, uh, okay. That's, yeah. Well, what's interesting, two things are interesting about this moment. One is that it's speech, right? The river is given speech, which I do think is very rare, if not unique, to this moment. But I also think, you guys know what the Aeolian harp is? Right. So you, you set it up. I don't exactly know how it works, but you set it up and then you, you set it out and then the wind blows over it and it makes the sound. It's like a wind chime. Right. I do think the river is ascribed to human quality here, but it's not ascribed total agency. Right. In a human way, it can only amplify the remarkable Orpheus's song. It's not given choice or, you know, the ability to do otherwise. So I wouldn't say it's fully human in that regards, but I would say that it is nonetheless remarkable that it's, it is given the power of speech in order to be an amplifier for Orpheus. Right, and well, that's why I keep connecting both metamorphosis and storytelling to death. And that's why I'm a little bit hesitant to say he's in pursuit of the immortal, because I think that he doesn't think he has any ability over death in a proper sense. I think he even as much as he identifies himself with Orpheus, I think even what he grants to Orpheus is something like death, right? Like in some ways, if the natural world could, could become human in the, in the same way that the human could become natural strictly, that would be some kind of triumph over death. And I think that the only moment that that can happen 
is properly at the creation of human beings. After we're created, there, there is no more becoming human in the natural world. But I do think there is this lesser victory over death, which is the animating of the natural world that a poet can accomplish. Yeah, I don't know. It really makes me feel like we're supposed to read this back into the earlier stories and say the poet Ovid was the one who brought the life to these seabirds. The poet Ovid was the one who brought the, the life to this tree. And now having encountered it that way, I, I feel like it's really changing the story for me from, because like I, the whole time, I'm like, oh, this book is so miserable. It's so pessimistic. Looking at it now, it's, I just, it just feels like now we're in some kind of like dialectic with death where Ovid's completely committed to the sense that, yeah, there's erasure, there's closure. You, you, you're, there's not an other side to your life, right? You, you can't keep yourself or if you're a ghost in hell and he chases Eurydice forever. But he's not at the end, right? I mean, he's, they go, yeah. they are in, they're in the fields of the blessed together. Yeah, but it, it it's not, it's, yeah, yeah. Which it's, I guess was, it, was an Ovidian uh, innovation there. I don't think they're. Hmm. Well, historically, only ones that could go to the blessed were the children of gods. I don't remember if Orpheus is. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds right to me that he would he would instill that as a new trait. But it, but it's like now now we're in this realm where it's like the poet can can bestow the earth with life, and I think that is really new to me in this story. Well, and to connect it to what Adam was saying about ancestors, right? So I had an earlier hypothesis that the world is getting less enriched as as individuals are reduced, right, to their their most salient characteristic. But I think the alternative way to think about it, which is becoming clear to me, and I think it connects to what you're saying, Greg, is that imagine you're a Roman who's fully ingested the Ovidian picture of the world. You're walking around the world and everywhere you see your ancestors, right? The, those who came before you speaking their peace, right? That you see the flower, you see the river, and uh, you're surrounded by, yeah, you could say the wisdom or whatever you want to call it, the wisdom of tradition, the wisdom of the past. You, you live in this enchanted world where everything that you encounter in your, your day-to-day life is your, your ancestors' lit- presence with you, right? They're not past, but they're present, albeit in a different form. And so there is a certain, certain sort of salvation from death in that if we know the stories, which connects to the importance of the poet, right? The poet's the only one that can communicate those stories so that we can recognize the enchantedness of the quotidian world that we're in. Yeah, the only thing I want to add to that, Elijah, is this is hard to read directly into it. So I, I might, I, you know, I'm willing to be off base on this, but it really feels like lying is a key part of that. It's not like, it feels like Ovid is separating himself from the Roman like patriarchal, or religious tradition where that, that, because that, that, I think that was like the standard Roman practice, right? The, the, the ancestors are there, they're powerful. We have to honor them. Now it feels much more like this attunement to lies is the way to accomplish that rather than something like that you earnestly believe in, you know, in a way that's a, a little more complicated. And I don't know how to, and the re- reason I'm inclined to say is something about the gods feels uh, it rings differently than than that straightforward thing. Yeah, the, the ancestors are everywhere and they're important. 
when I, I think there's something interesting there, I need to think about lying, but I will say at this point that the version of Ovid that I just laid out a minute ago is much more, I think, conservative than Ovid actually is. I think he's, he's not quite as conservative as I just painted him out to be, though in what way he deviates from like, I think Virgil or something, I think is more conservative, by which I mean more faithful to the conventional Roman idea of piety, even though Virgil's not totally faithful as we, you know, there are these wrinkles in, in his book too, where he's sort of challenging the pieties. But I think, yeah, Ovid is not a straightforward Roman conservative and he was exiled for a reason, right? They saw, and we don't exactly know the reason as far as I know, but they, the, the powers that be saw something dangerous in his poetry, I imagine. But I do think what we're identifying here is that he is, there's maybe more continuity with conventional Roman piety than we've given him credit for in the past, even if he's not a total uh, team player, as it were. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I, ju- I really am just feeling that right now. Like, I feel like the whole book is being flipped for me, where it feels like the first half of the book was just him, you know, taking out our legs and like flipping the Roman tradition on its side and gutting it. And I felt that actually, too, with the Alcyon story. And I definitely want to get there where, where there's this weird pouring back into like he's drained the bay or something. And now, you know, there's a new flood back into the into the cistern or something. I don't know. I have no idea how to talk about it, but it's. Uh. Greg, Greg mutes himself in protest. <laughs> so where one cannot speak, we must be silent. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, did you have something to say a minute ago? Just trying to see where we are here with the, talking about Orpheus, talking about the world imbued with meaning by Ovid. Was there and, yeah. was there like a particular section or anything that you thought was especially? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this book. There was a really, I don't know if there's like a particular section of it, the book you wanted to draw us to because I'm not sure. One thing I had a thought about the section that Elijah read a little while ago about Apollo turning the snake to stone and just a bit of a detail that Apollo plays the liar and Orpheus plays the liar. So something about that instrumental kinship, I thought might be interesting. Why, why Apollo saves the head of Orpheus from the stone and then of course we get a a nice a further discussion on the importance of the lyre or the in the hierarchy of instruments where the lyre is placed with uh midas and his poor judgment yeah the midas stories were were very strange i i guess that those are are supposed to be comedy i didn't know how to read them except as very long-winded jokes bizarre jokes right and uh for his poor judgment midas uh is given the ears of the jackass right and uh that reminded me of course of bottom in uh, midsummer night's dream mm-hmm. we've we've tracked some influences of ovid on shakespeare how how shakespeare was influenced by the metamorphoses I think one thing about the that's something we can see there. Strange but, thing about the Midas, the Midas turning everything to gold story is that it has a very 
that has a very Aesopian feeling, right? It's like, be careful what you wish for. Don't wish to turn everything you touch to gold because you won't be able to eat. But he doesn't, he's not really punished for it. You know, he is a strange character in that he, he's greedy and he's stupid, but he's not himself turned to gold. He is able to wash away his transgressions. Bacchus forgives him and gives him another chance, which is a very unbacchian thing to do. This is literally the gods are kind, which is unheard (laughs) of in the book so far. It's not true. What a statement out of nowhere, right? And then it it also, so here's both the punishments in the Bacchus section had an interesting thing. Now I'm really attuned to the natural world coming back. But so Bacchus puts, or sorry, not Bacchus, Midas puts his head in the fountain and it washes away. What happens? The river is now infused with gold, right? Like the natural world gets more interesting more interesting, particularly to humans, right? Like that gold, the love of gold is, it's not personification, but it is of interest to human. So it's not like Midas's metamorphosis, right? His first is he projects onto the outward world, the ability to turn it gold, right? He metamorphoses the natural world. He's not a metamorphizer or he's not metamorphosed. He's the one metamorphizing. And then he's punished by the world continuing to be metamorphosed in his way, right? So he turns the world to gold. His punishment is he makes the world permanently yeah. more gold. The second one. His punishment gets, is like that his power is unlimited or something. Like he doesn't, yeah. you know what I mean? It's yeah, not, exactly. His wish is not carefully constructed. <laughs> yeah, this, the second one too, really key, right? So he, what was, what was the exact crime? Kind of interesting because, uh, yeah. he, you know, he, he doesn't, he, neg- he like neglects to think about himself as an agent. It's like, because the real thing, you know, I mean, it's still probably there'd be some ironic reversal, but you could say, I wish that I could turn everything to gold that I wanted to turn to gold. Like, I wish I could turn objects to gold at will. That's what he really means. He doesn't, but he just frames it in a absolute sense, you know, and that's the sort of source of his, of his problem, right? Right. And then the consequences, he gets that. He, he basically gets a river of gold right next to his palace, which is, total fulfillment of his wish, right? Now, now the gold is there and he can mine it um, at will, right? So he gets what he wants. The second one, you know, I read it. And I was like, oh God, this is going to be horrible. Like there's a contest between gods and he's going to be judging it, right? Like every time we've seen that, that's the most torturous, miserable fates, right? Arachne kills herself um, and strangles herself with the rope. And then Athena tortures her corpse by transforming it into a spider so that forever we can be aware of her being better and Athena than moving. I said the up- craziest thing a god has done is that she just beats her with the, it's like not even, it's just so savage. There's not, like you, a lot of the gods' punishments you could read is almost as metaphoric or something. But in that story, it's like, and Athena just picked up the, the loom and beat her to death with it. Like, right. That's so. So my as arranges this contest between gods, which is better than claiming that you're going to do it yourself, but he's set up for disastrous, disastrous failure. Um, and it all happens just because he falls way too in love with Pan's song. So he calls on the best god of music, Apollo outperforms Pan. And it seems like Midas is still so deeply into the song that he doesn't notice Apollo's some, song or something, that Apollo's song is better. And so Midas says, no, this is unfair. You know, he didn't really win. And instead of being punished in any kind of really dramatic way, it's a comic punishment, right? He gets asses ears, but it's, it's easy enough that he can hide it with a hat, 
right? The only person who actually finds out, like, so obviously very comic, his barber is the only one to find out. And then his barber does something bad, right? Yeah. Like you think that's Also the intrusion some... of a barber into the story was very weird to me. Oh yeah. <laughs> so all of a sudden there's like tradesmen and an economy of what is a royal barber. Well, I think this is what's happening. It's like we're entering, like uh, this book is very progressive and it's like not progressive, like politically progressive, well, po- progressive towards the politics, right? Like mm-hmm. we're developing over time the sense of, deeper sense of the world than the opening stories might lend us an idea of. But so his barber is introduced and his barber's, you know, sins by talking, which is usually also punishable by death or transformation earlier in the story. And instead what happens, he, so he, he like, you know, reaches his hands and digs, speaks, sneaks into a hole and like whispers Midas his ass's ears. And then the, the, again, the natural world is transformed towards a more human right now. Now the, the reeds whisper Midas has asses ears. And it's like, yeah, that's good. So these, these humorous things aren't transformation. They're not metamorphoses in the way we've been primed to accept them. They're increasingly happening to the natural world as opposed Mm -hmm. to the earlier ones, which were so dramatic and so final and torturous. And then additionally, you know, there's this comic layering that's entering in and, and this like, I mean, the, the Alkyo one is so beautiful and tragic and emotional, right? Like the, the weather itself is put, right? Cause that's the ultimate final transformation is not only are they turned into birds, but that the weather itself is held back for the sake of these birds who were once human, right? That's like, we get now seven days of peace from the storms, of the wind. So again, like, there are still metamorphoses, but but on a deeper level, the whole natural world is echoing back these metamorphoses in ways that we've not really been primed before. Greg, I think that's really great. I think you're spot on. And I think you're uh, noticing that the plants being put in service of telling the message of the barber is really important. And it, it almost seems like as we can sort of see, right, Troy is built in this uh, the walls of Troy are started in this uh, book. We can see that as we move towards the Roman reality, it seems like humans are now imbued with the power to shape nature in a different way, right? To affect nature with an almost godlike capacity. I mean, if we're calling Orpheus a human, which I think he's at least partially human, and then and then the barber, right? A simple, a simple townsperson, right? Has now has been suddenly imbued with the power to change the structure or nature of nature the qualities of nature in some way it's like pretty astounding and i think yeah it's very hard to track all the ways this book is progressing but i think that does seem to me novel and strange and like it's turning over earlier established categories in some way these reeds it's kind of interesting to think about the the reeds are now ridiculing midas when they shake in the wind but reeds are also the plant that is used to make the pipes that Pan plays. So Midas is now being ridiculed by the material that constructs the instrument that he thought was better than the lyre. Foolish, oh, yeah. foolish Midas. Yes, he never learns. That's good. Yeah, he sort of uses the world as an instrument, right? That's the reeds become an instrument for the barber's secret. I think, yeah, I think the the, categor- the categories or the, the 
relationship of gods and humans to nature like the power dynamics of that relationship seem to be shifting is that a way to like because i wanted to read there these two examples right next to each other around line 400 right before the quest of quest of sex and then before he leaves so in the story of thetis this wolf is unleashed on the cattle of pelas as a punishment for killing his brother and the gods forgive pelas but still the wolf kept on the blood was sweet to drink no power could call him back he buried his fangs in a young young heifer's neck there and then was changed to marble so this is a moment where the rage of the wolf exceeds the punishment of the goddess and he's changed to marble eventually there is this interesting moment that where he is unable to be called back right he's, his rage is unable to be stopped so his rage sort of exceeds the power of the goddess in that moment and then on the next page when alcyon is trying to convince sex not to sail to the to the oracle Instantly, I thought it was hilarious that he's going to go to Kleros to the oracle that offers help to mankind in trouble, which <laughs> is not how I think of oracles in uh, epic literature. But in any case, she's saying to him, you might think that you'll be spared because, because my father rules the winds. And do not fool yourself with a false assurance because my father rules the winds and holds them behind strong bars. And when he wills can calm the ocean's rage. I tell you, when the winds have been turned loose, have gained the deep, they suffer no calling back, and every land and ocean is at their mercy. They will even batter at heaven and rouse red lightning with their warfare. The more I know them, and I really know them, I have seen them when I was a little girl around my father's house, the more I think them dreadful indeed. So it's another kind of example of potentially natural powers being out of control of the gods that are supposed to be in charge of them. I don't know if that goes along with what you were developing, Elijah, but I noticed that throughout this book, there were multiple times where briefly we were introduced to the idea that some curse or natural force, you know, was beyond the reach of whatever god or goddess or divine or semi-divine being was supposed to be in control of that. Can you can you say your hypothesis again? And like, I just I'm, I'm wrapping my head around it. Can you just say it again in like two or three sentences? Well, I was just thinking, are we as we move towards the present of of Ovid's present are we thinking that the one thing that's that's happening one thing that's changing one sort of maybe sort of deep metamorphosis is that the relationship of human beings and gods to nature is and that's those sort of power dynamics are shifting over time Mm -hmm. so that proteus or whatever god is no longer in total control of the natural element they're supposed to be the god or goddess of i think that's got to be right i think one of the things i'm trying to like look at is the structure right now so the first set is the gods are 100 charge and you know vicious it seems like the second set of stories we've read all the loved ones it just seems like cupid or love or whatever personification steps in to the narrative and dominates it right all the powers of the gods take a backseat and love emerges as this predominant natural power over everybody. And that's, that's also really bad. And then now we're entering this weird thing after Orpheus, where Orpheus is someone who suffers under the love pathos, but as a result of Orpheus's own engagement with it, it's like the, the new world is 
he's opened up. It's still bad, you know, but it's it's, it's so so different. Because we're moving into history now, right? Like the next thing that's like Troy is built in this and destroyed by Hercules. So we're still in like mythic prehistory. But the next book, this book ends with a movement into the time of Hector. And so to some degree, I'm not sure to what degree, to a Roman or to Ovid, you're gonna, that's gonna be the beginning of like written plausible human history. It almost makes this book like a really authentic telling or like attempted an authentic telling of natural history in, in a really weird and unexpected way. Yeah. You know, like, like this evolutionary is, stories. Yeah. Like a radically evol- uh, evolutionary commitment to the story of becoming human. Ugh, whoa. <laughs> hmm. So, so I'm not, this might be a non sequitur, so we don't necessarily have to go here, but I was thinking while I was reading the story of sex, I was thinking about the wedding feast of Peleus earlier. And in the wedding feast of Peleus, we sort of talked about it as a parody of the epic genre. Right. It was the sort of thing that would happen in an epic, but it's sort of ridiculous, right? And over the top and sort of silly in all these ways. And then we come to this story, which is really filled with a lot of genuine pathos. And then there's some sort of genuine redemption at the end, or at least quasi-redemption. It's lacking that sort of Ovidian snark and maybe even cynicism that we detected earlier. And it sort of just reads like a straightforward tragedy or something. I guess maybe not a tragedy if we think that there's redemption in the end, but with their transformation. But I was sort of very much struck by the, yeah, the lack of Ovidian irony or something in there. And I'm wondering if that connects with what you're wanting to think about, Adam, or I'm wondering, well, first of all, if you think that that's a, a, a adequate starting point for reading the story, but then second, if it is, how does that signal what Ovid is doing in terms of the evolution of his narrative style and narrative stance? There's a lot of, a lot of questions there. So I'm, I'm trying to think about it. If we think of, yeah, certainly I think that the, uh, yeah, the, the, the battle at the feast was a parody of epic violence. That's, that seems right. And he, this is, as, as Alex mentioned, I think before this shipwreck it's not a shipwreck but this this event at sea also has a kind of quality like something out of the odyssey but it's not a parody right it is written yeah without snark without irony it's not over the top it's not silly and it's also not seemingly motivated by the anger of a god or it hasn't it just is he is a very he's an entrans he has an intransigent kind of character (laughs) and he decides he's going to sail and his wife says it's a bad idea you're going to die. I know the seas. I'm I'm of the sea, and they, you'll your ship will sink. And he says, uh, "Be very sad to die." Or he kind of he it's almost like he knows that she's right, but he's already he's like, "I made my decision. I have to do it." And he sails. And he sails into a storm, and it's a bad storm, and his ship sinks. <laughs> it's like, but there's not as if the gods were angry or he has a tragic flaw. It's really just like almost like a recognition that sailing across the mediterranean was dangerous i don't know I, i'm i'm trying to i don't feel like i don't have like a very coherent point here but i mean there does there's like a different feeling to it you know because yeah it's not parody it's not irony but it's not really an epic in the sense that he's on like an epic quest or anything he just dies at sea in a storm the way that presumably many <laughs> sailors did 
The only part that was ironic, I think it's worth mentioning, is with Hera, right? Or not Hera, what is she called? Juno in this, where Juno's mad because she's getting all of these prayer requests for someone who's already dead. And she's like, well, just, I'll just clean this up. Uh, is like, so, so it's not that she has any sympathy for Akion, yeah. or it's just that she simply is bothered by the supplications she's receiving over a dead man. So then she has this elaborate thing where dream appears to him, you know, whatever. Yeah, it was very strange. Yeah, which, which then is also made stranger when his actual body just floats up on the shore. <laughs> uh, and it's like, well, why was the dream sequence necessary if a day later his body is going to appear on the shore uh-huh. um, it almost felt like an excuse it almost felt like a reason to describe the house of sleep but i wasn't sure why Avi would be so interested in a long description of the house of sleep but it was amazing right <laughs> the yeah. house of sleep <laughs> the god wakes up he like doesn't want to get up rolls over again it's like dark <laughs> i don't know i just i found it quite charming and the dream the dream sequence the sort of elaborate set of steps that they had to take in order to uh, instantiate this dream and the sort of detailed description of like this person goes to this person which goes to this person who then puts on the costume or whatever <laughs> was i mean i don't i don't know what to make it, it was totally bizarre but uh, i don't know i really enjoyed it i was th- well, i was thinking about like freud or something reading this and <laughs> you know yes yeah, so because theorizing this, this story was so weird too because so much of the story was so much emphasis was placed on it's not her husband right oh no it's only morpheus which is such a loaded character in a story titled metamorphoses but it's only morpheus that's appearing to her it's not her husband and then she says well it's it was so like him it really was him it was his voice i you know and so there's there is that like ironic undercurrent where this dream sequence is so fake but she's so and you could see like a tragedy in there oh you know, she's been duped by the gods again, where she, she was made to experience this thing that's true through a completely fake medium where, um, you know, a guy dresses up and she witnesses the naked decomposing corpse of her husband in a dream. But it was it was just Morpheus. It wasn't her husband. And then the the body floats to shore like, like that is so weird. But Greg, isn't I mean, isn't that a perfect example of the good kind of lie that you're talking about? The kind of lie that's good? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes, yes. I can't tie it all together yet, though. Yeah, and someone else too. It is fortunate that the the intention of the gods is not to to trick Alcyone into some sort of folly, but to convince her that her husband has died, which is true, so that uh, Alcyone can proceed with mourning rather than waiting continuing to wait for someone who will not return alive right so is there a sense that that because she's moved on to to mourning the death of her husband rather than hoping that he's still alive she's prepared in a different way to see his body so when she sees his body she can transform with him into a bird somehow the dream was necessary to prepare the way for that well i mean on a really on a so on a concrete level right she has the dream and then it says uh like line seven seven hundred or so it was morning and she left her house to wander along that seashore found the place again where she had watched him sail and while she lingered 
And while she lingered and while she said, he just here, he loosed the cable, just here he stood and kissed me, dwelling so on every recollection, out to sea she gazed and out at sea caught sight of something. So the efficient cause of her going down to the beach was the dream. But that being said, it doesn't feel like a necessary plot point, right? You could just say one day she woke up to go see the place where her husband left. No, yeah, no, I was, I was thinking more like in terms of her emotional state, you know, she was able for, I don't, I don't know, I'm just sort of trying to think through, but somehow like she, because she knows he's already dead, when she sees his body, she's able to like mourn him in a different way or, and somehow that is the, this is a, she doesn't have like a happy ending exactly, but it's true they are together permanently and yeah, the sea is calm for them, which is something that she says can't happen before, right? It's almost like mm. she gets an ex- a special exam, they get a special exemption somehow. I wonder if the dream has something to do with that. I don't know. But the transformation is not Juno's, as Greg has mentioned already, the transformation is no. not Juno's purpose. She just says, yep. how irksome to me, all this prayer for a dead man. Yeah, um, yeah, no, that's true. It's interesting because, right, praying for a dead man or something is a different sort of falsehood or lie that for some reason, of all the things in this messed up, effed up world, Juno finds that offensive for some reason, like... <laughs> Um, I don't know. You're right, though. The the elaborateness. It's inter- I mean, it's like and another another example, maybe of the sort of way the gods' power is changing, or as we're seeing it in a different way. It's like a very subconscious, subterranean series of steps. You know, <laughs> instead of just instead of Juno just showing up and saying like, "Hey, your husband's dead," <laughs> or just being angered at shooting this woman in the mouth or something, which has happened many times before. Right? That said. There are, especially the female goddesses, tend to act that way. Like, I think we saw something similar when uh, who's, Demeter decides to loose famine on someone, right? Like, anytime one of these abstract things are personified, it's usually because a female goddess, I think Juno invoked the first one, too, with, was it, it wasn't sleep, was it paralysis or death? I can't remember. Because um, basically, a female goddess is offended but not being an actor herself, she calls upon some abstract entity to do it for her. And it's a long drawn out subterranean process. And I really want to say it's something like the, the coming into being of these and into our world of these subterranean processes. It's like now dreams are an important, consistent thing when before they weren't really, or now famine is an important, consistent thing when it wasn't really. There has to be some way to think about the, the specific types of entities that are personified and their dwellings are personified at length in that way right there's been sleep famine and envy Is envy. There anything else yeah. yeah who loosed envy uh i don't remember i think that was juno too but i might be wrong but yeah i think it's well first thing is they're they're gods not worthy of worship right sleep famine and envy are, are not they're not gods in a normal sense like every god right. presented this so far is worthy of worship in some way, but not these ones. They're all comic, right? On another level, like they're grotesquely comic. Uh, as as brutal as famine is, she's still this like you know nasty skin bag. Envy is loose by Minerva. Yeah, so it is. It is all female goddesses. That's yeah, it's interesting. But Minerva is a very active female goddess, I suppose. Well, Juno is too. I don't know, but I think I think of Juno as primarily acting active, but active through others. But Minerva has no qualms about 
beating someone to death with a. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how to think about the. You're right that there are three divine entities in some way, but they're not gods or goddesses in the sense that you would build shrines and temples to them. And there are gods and prayers. There are gods and goddesses. I always think of the Greek and Roman ideas of gods as possession, right? Where where you're going along, you're yourself, and something comes upon you inside of you. And I think that's a key trait of a god. And I think they do have that quality of possession, right? Famine possesses you. Your belly takes over and you're this, you know, envy possesses you. Oh, yeah, I remember the envy thing. That's like the slithering snakes crawling into people. But it, what, didn't that have something to do with Venus too? Like Venus was working in tandem with Minerva in that section. I don't remember. But yeah, yeah, the the these are all and sleep is obviously possession too. So the, their personal gods are they're even more intimate than the traditional gods, right? Athena doesn't really possess you in the same way that these entities do. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if it can. I, I want to say there's a way that you can experience all three of them as a kind of. Yeah, possession or like an alien force, you know, I, that, mm-hmm. that, I don't know. I mean, I feel like with envy and famine, you could say if you're possessed by envy, then a particular object of envy becomes your obsession, right? And you, you takes control of your life and your behavior. And you could say the same thing about extreme hunger. If you're starving, you're, you're possessed in a way by hunger and you, you can't think about anything else. Sleep, I suppose you could be a, possessed by sleep in that way feels some i mean i wonder i wonder to what degree so if we think about the i guess the conventional pantheon for lack of a better word like we have instances of the god taking over you know achilles or whatever as he throws a spear or that sort of thing but sleep envy and famine seem to be things that afflict the collective in some way right we all sleep during the night if there's a there's never really a famine of one and then envy is often it's envy envy often plagues a community right it can plague a single person but it often plagues a community and i wonder if because i'm trying to think about right the romans are observing these phenomena um like and i think about early pages of tacitus where he talks about all the backbiting among the Roman elite, which is essentially like a form of envy, right? That afflicts that whole class until they, you know, self-destruct. I wonder if there's something about these things affl- afflicting the collective that sets them apart in some way. I don't know. I'm not sure. I, you think sleep? In what sense is sleep a collect? I mean, isn't sleep a... That one fits least well in my theory. Yeah. And no, sleep is absolutely a collective. Like, the, especially, I mean, dreams might not be, but sleep is... It to be something everyone sleeps, right? But I mean, people don't sleep collectively. I mean, I guess everyone sleeps at night. That, that's what we do. Absolutely, we do. As a society, right? There's set times for sleeping and waking. Yeah, but I feel like envy and hunger, I think Elijah's right. Hunger is something that you share that is like passed among people in some way. Mm-hmm. But not, not sleep, not in the same way. I mean, you might even say dreams are more so than... Well, and I'll, I'll tell you kind of what I was thinking. I was thinking, well, like what other phenomenon would be, could be treated in the same way? Well, plague obviously could. Love. Um, love. Eh, see, then love is kind of tough because it does, love does seem to strike the individual. 
but love in in the metamorphoses love is always inflicted by a cupid or a venus on an individual right there's no house of love or den of love as this sort of demigod type figure i don't know i so i think you're right but but in some ways i do feel like cupid is getting increasingly depersonified throughout the story as a but still recognized as an all-important power right like the, all these later stories are still well not Midas but the Alcyon story is still very much about the power of Cupid in this sense it's literally Cupid has power of life over death right she can Cupid can bring the dead to life albeit as birds but nonetheless right it's said definitively kicks here's his wife's call through death mm-hmm. akin to how orpheus was able to mm-hmm. hear to eurydice through death mm-hmm. yeah we might but, think but of it, the, in that sense of the death of orpheus is marking an important moment right in that the death of orpheus he goes to the fields of the blessed his soul persists or something and is with eurydice in the underworld in some fashion the obviously there's an echo of that and sex and alkion but they don't they become birds together right but they there's no and his soul has also persisted because yes he does feel he hears and feels her through death but their souls remain in in the world and in time i think that ties in what we were saying before about the deeper transformations of the story as we're watching it move forward it really feels like we're, we're, this is a new book. Now that Orpheus, or at least to me, that now that Orpheus has come and gone, the story has a very different meaning than what it did before. And it would make sense that Ovid would, I mean, ass- assuming he was thoughtful in his composition, which I think is a pretty fair assumption to make for classical authors, it would make sense that the book would be split into thirds, right? Um, and at book 11, there would be some sort of new beginning. Um, and I mean, at least we can maybe talk about this a little bit. At least one of those new beginnings is that Bacchus seems to be transformed from an agent of pure chaos to a respectable god right. who's who brings, brings order into chaos, right? It's like yeah. a, seems like a total shift in his character. And I mean, it's so obvious. What's what was the guy's name in book the early book who got torn apart by the Bacchanalian woman women, you know? the women celebrating the rites of Bacchus, the Orpheus story, the Orpheus story echoes that exactly. It's the exact same sort of event. And Bacchus is displeased because it's one of his singers, but there's certainly some sort of irony there that an event that he instigated before is now one that he punishes. It's a structurally identical sort of event. And and now he punishes it. It seems like a total like 180 in his role or something. Of course, the, the difference is Pentheus refused to recognize Bacchus as divine and worship him. And Orpheus is obviously doing the opposite. Or he was, he was pleasing to Bacchus in his singing and still gets torn apart by mad, mad revelers. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's exactly. I mean, I think that's a totally valid point. But I'm 
it's still it's still i mean bacchus is so associated with the revelry right in in the greek plays and in this he's so associated with this sort of action and it's weird that right the the text reads right but bacchus demanded punishment for so much evil right not like hey this guy was one of my buddies right but like no this was an evil act and maybe i'm sort of reading it with a I mean, I'm certainly reading it, right, influenced by sort of Christianity and, and the sort of general Christian disapproval of, of mobs like this. But I don't know, it just, yeah, just, it does feel like some sort of turn is happening. No, they're identified, I think, as manas, which I think means they're literally followers of Bacchus. And the interesting thing, too, is none of these people are Greek. Orpheus is Thracian. The, the manas are identified as Kirkonian, which I think is Thracian. You know, Kikonian, and then of course Bacchus is also Thracian. So we have these like strange outside. This is a story outside of the ancient world, right? Or like as as the Romans thought of it. Um, these these are all just a bunch of barbarians, but somehow this has tremendous world historical significance. These three groups of of barbarians and their mutual interactions. Something about the the evil of the main ads. The line. After 21, it's probably like line 27, they rushed Orpheus, they threw the wands, wreathed with green leaves, not meant for such a purpose. So there's these wands that they have that are wreathed with green leaves, and it's meant to be a symbol of of worshiping Bacchus or paying homage to him. And so they're trying to use the the sticks that they have to kill Orpheus, which were not meant for that purpose. Just to uh, give a little description of of the evil nature of their this affront to Bacchus. Well, this is different than Pentheus. I mean, we can think about who Pentheus is as a character, but right, Orpheus is a poet. He is the poet. He is the premier poet of the book, and is is therefore and at least at least in some sense is a representative of ovid and uh yeah he gets murdered by the crowd what i'm sort of thinking about because he he, not because he's a poet i mean he gets murdered because he gets stuck Mm -hmm. right he's he's murdered because he won't marry he's a despiser of women oh that's right no i forgot about that detail about the uh about he brings he brings pederasty to the with him right he says that it's better to love young boys than to marry right so the, the women kill him because he won't marry. But I was going to say, I kept uh, thinking when I was reading this, I was thinking about changed. the very first epic simile in the Aeneid, right? Was, was talking about the waves crashing and it was like when an unruly, as, as, as when an unruly crowd is stilled by a, a powerful leader or something. Leader, yeah. yeah. And I was thinking about as we're moving into Roman history, right? as we're moving into the historical Rome, the question of of what to do with the hoi polloi and how to control them, I imagine is going to come more into focus. And maybe the story is ringing a first note about that mm-hmm. question, because now we have an unruly crowd in a way that in the yeah. Bacchi, the early in Bacchanalian crowds were unruly, but unruly in a in a pious way, at least according to Bacchus's own, you know, <laughs> logic, as it were. Yeah. Um, it's very strange because they are the nature as we discussed before is sympathetic to orpheus and it's like the bacchian revelers are out of out of tune with nature 
right? Which, which thematically, right, would fit very well with like the Georgics and what Virgil's right. trying to think about there, right. right? How this Roman civilization has lost the plot vis-a-vis harmony with nature, right? And and on a related note, if I can do a little bit of a, a shift here, I also, I mean, I don't know what what sense Ovid would have had of either the Jewish religion or Christianity, which I think he's a little bit pre-Christian, right? But there was a there was a lot of talk about sin in this book, and Midas. It must be like a translation thing, right? Because I that's what I, I was mean, wondering yeah. about. Well, and Midas like literally baptizes himself right he says to, his transgressions were washed away which i has to be it I mean, there's that, no way that's, that's what i was wondering about too i was like that yeah. can't be right yeah. <laughs> but it'd be interesting to look at the latin and see what's going on there but i do think yeah. uh you know when john the baptist goes around baptizing people it's a cultural form that they recognize right he's not making it up i mean i don't know the history of it i'm sure you could research this and find out but it wasn't like he was the first one to ever talk about this he was doing something that others had had done albeit in a different way, right? Under, under, I mean, in the specifically Judeo-Christian way he was doing it, but I'd be interested to know what other incarnations baptism had, either pagan or Jewish. But this is something that we are not, I'm not equipped to talk about, but I just noticed that the word sin was coming up a lot. And I was like, what does this actually mean in this context? Yeah. Not, not the same meaning as it has for the New Testament, I don't think. Yeah, definitely washing away stuff, though, is a really old idea. And that's just like cleanliness, right? Like the proto forms of baptism have something to do with cleanliness. You know, even like even the Achilles myth is a pseudo baptism, right? He just dunks him in the water and he gains immortality by it wherever he touches. When even his prayer, right? Midas's prayer, which again, I think Adam is onto something. There's Humphreys is maybe playing a little fast and loose with the translation here. But Midas's prayer, forgive me, Father, I have sinned, have mercy upon me, mm-hmm. right? Save me from this loss that looks so much like a gain, right? <laughs> Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? That's the archetypal yeah. <laughs> Christian prayer. Um, and I mean, that sounds like it's taken out of the King James Version. I mean, obviously, yeah. Ovid is not, the no, idea yeah. is communicated. <laughs> yeah, 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 well, if, if Greg, if you have any inkling to track down the Latin, you know, between now and next week, you can fill us in on maybe where Humphreys is airing I was sort of surprised there wasn't a footnote there that was saying like well Humphreys is being a little liberal (laughs) translation Greg you're muted you're talking but muted still muted sorry five different things are going on um okay so back to this real quick so Bacchus or not Bacchus um still muted Greg (laughs) we can't can't hear you (laughs) Here we go. Hey, okay, finally. So Bacchus, sorry, not Midas. He says, Darwinium Linne Pater. So that's, that's, O Father Linnaeus, Pekka Wimus. Like, uh, we've sinned. Uh, like, like we've, we, I've, I, I've, you know, there, there's been wrongdoing. It's a transgression, mm-hmm. a violation. Um, I am worthless, like, but, you know, O miserable me, can you forgive me? Or like, forgive me in your sight. I, like it's it's pretty close actually he's asking for like some kind of blessing or ignoring the fact that he pickled which is like to to sin or violate yeah so i guess maybe we're getting in the historical direction wrong it's that christianity takes that language and 
adds a moral depth to it. Maybe that's what we're. Oh, I mean, that's certainly the case. Yeah. Well, and, and you guys know this, right? Uh, Son yeah. of God is a title first for Caesar, and then Caesar. Christ yeah. appropriates it for himself to be like, actually, I'm the real, <laughs> I'm the authentic version of what Caesar claims to be. Yeah, yes. Without a doubt. Yeah, that's what's happening. Yeah. But it's but it becomes very difficult for us 2,000 years out to read it and, and know what that word means. I'm sure, I'm sure we could look up scholarship on it. But I, I mean, sort of, I took us into the weeds a little bit, but uh, all that aside, maybe the larger point I can make here is that, and I think we've already said this, is that as we're trying to suss out this turn that it seems like Ovid is making, he seems very much in this book to be much more like a straightforward moralizer than he has in the past. Um, and even the Midas stories, right? They, like Adam, you said they read like Aesop fables there's there's less irony and a little bit more it seems to me uh sincere or serious thinking about moral issues and virtue what else do we need to say i think that's a good uh, that's a good place to wrap it up i think we've gone we've gone pretty long here anyway thank right. you for joining us on our quixotic quest for the key to all mythologies next week we'll be reading ovid book 12 thank you for joining us thank you good night Good night. Night. I mentioned this before, but I mean, I read this book on my own a couple of years ago, and I uh, there's really no comparison to this the experience to this time to that time. No, if I had read this book on my own, I would have just thrown it out away. Like I just, you know, my first experience with this book was this book is worthless and I hate it. Um, uh, and now I'm in a completely different place with it. All the outtakes for all the books of of uh, Ovid or just you saying how you hated it at first, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> oh man.